Yes, of course, absolutely. Um, so I don't think that being humble and bold are opposites. So, you know, I'm Lutheran. Martin Luther is famous for standing up, you know, in front of the, the political and religious and economic authorities and saying, here I stand. I can't do anything else. God help me. Well, that was a pretty humble statement, right? Here I stand. I can't, I can't do anything else. I'm not saying that I know the truth and you don't. I am saying that what God has shown me so far, I will live by and die for. But he could show me that I'm wrong. And he could show me that I'm wrong through you. <laughs> because I'm not him. And, and I know that he is always taking me down a path. Right? I know that he has taken me from somewhere else to where I am now. And he will take me from where I am now to somewhere else. Because God is always revealing himself to us over time. Hey there, welcome back. I am Seth. This is the Can I Say This at Church podcast. Let's do this thing. I want to be brief because I think that the conversation is so, 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 so good today. I mean, uh, they're all good, but I really liked this one. And so I spoke with the Reverend Alexia Salavatiera and we went, oh, it was so good. I don't even have a good way to do it. So we talked about, you know, we talked a lot about what it looks like to be an activist, what it looks like for the church to be active in activism, what a prophetic voice should and should not look like, what does that work look like and why should we do it? And then we pivoted to some stories of how that works, centering a lot on immigration. And that is a as a conversation that matters so, so much for so many countries, not just the United States. And so what is kind of the church's role when we're talking about activism, when we're talking about immigration and matters like that? And how does that kind of reconcile with politics? And so I'm excited to rock and roll. So let's do this thing. Dr. Alexia Salavatiera, welcome to the Can I Say This at Church podcast. I'm hopeful that I said your name right. I may not have. And if so, I'm sorry. But but, um, but, um, (laughs) welcome to the show. I am excited to talk to you. And then just for listeners, and we we talked about this just briefly, I came upon you by a review of someone on the show that said, hey, you should reach out to some of these other voices. And um, I didn't know any of those voices. And I've since then begun digging into all of you. And and um, I'm thankful for people that do that and give me new names to, to talk to because ideas are fantastic. So what would you want us to know a bit about you? What is kind of your story of what makes you the doctor that you are. Uh, okay. <laughs> well, so um, I am a Lutheran pastor. I've been a Lutheran pastor for a very long time, um, 32 years now, ordained. And I was involved in active ministry for about 10 years before that. So, um, but I call myself Luther Costal. I came to Christ in the Jesus movement of the 70s. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, so I have a world in the, uh, put in these various worlds. Um, but I think that from the beginning of my ministry, I've really been called into the intersection 
between the church and the world that um, is an intersection of holistic mission. That what is the church called to in terms of our, our impact on the world in total, not only with, with regards to eternal life, but also with regards to abundant life. Mm-hmm. That how do we bring abundant life to the world? And so I, I think I've always been called to stand on, on that border between the church and the world and to engage the church in, and not just to call the church. I'm not really a prophet. I'm an organizer, but I'm not about calling the church. I'm about engaging the church in bringing abundant and eternal life to the world. And so I've done that in a whole variety of ways um, in this country and overseas. I've been a missionary in the Philippines I was there, um, I was part of the pro-democracy movement against the dictator Ferdinand Marcos. I was involved in that movement. Mm-hmm. I've been involved in this, the Central American Sanctuary Movement in this country and in leadership in, um, I think, four national initiatives now on engaging the church in the whole area of immigration. And, uh, and been involved a lot with poverty and working poverty in particular. How does the church make a difference for people that are suffering, working poverty. So I've done a lot of different things over my many years of many years, including congregational, more typical ministries like congregational ministries and lots of um, Hispanic ministries. Goodness. So you were in the Philippines and I heard you speak on, I heard briefly or or read something that you said about the Philippines. And I'm going to do this from memory because I didn't write it down. Something about this, the, something to the effect of um, you didn't appreciate democracy until you lived in the Philippines, and then you realized something about the way that we do democracy here. And I yes. might be badly paraphrasing that, but I don't know anything about the Philippines outside of we import many things from the Philippines. So what do you mean by, or at least we used to, what do you mean by by that with, with the, the pro-democracy movement in the Philippines? Like, what's the purpose? And then how does that relate to kind of how we do democracy here? Right. So there's a there's a whole lot to unpack in what you just said, right? <laughs> I have a tendency <laughs> I mean, to ramble. Why does democracy even matter? <laughs> so, so, you know, I, I want to say that um, when we talk about why the church should care about democracy, which is a, a good question, not an automatic answer, right? It's, it's a question of stewardship. Hmm. That, you know, we know that we're called to love our neighbor as ourselves. The question is, what do we have to offer when we go to do that? Just the same as, you know, if we're we're about offering um, eternal and abundant life through Jesus to the world, then, you know, what are the tools that we use? What do we have in our hands? What have we been given? So it's not enough to love with your heart because you don't just have a heart. You also have a mind. So you have to love as intelligently and effectively as possible, mm. right? So we talk about, you know, you don't just give someone a fish, you, what might be more intelligent and yep. effective to yep. teach them to fish. But if you take your fishing pole down to the pond and there's a wall around the pond, it's not enough to know how to fish. You have to be able to access the pond, right? So um, public decisions tend to put up the walls and take down the walls in our communities. And what I mean by that is a private decision is a decision you make that affects you, 
maybe your church, maybe your block, you know, maybe your little small business, right? A public decision affects the whole community. So, you know, in Jeremiah, when we read about being about the shalom of the community, that, you know, we are called to be about the shalom of the community, the justice and peace of the community in which we live, the well-being of the community in which we live, that there are public decisions that really impact the communities in which we live. So then the question is, becomes, the stewardship question becomes, do we have the capacity to impact public decision-making, right? Do we, do we have a say in whether people have access to the fund, hmm. right? Do we say have a say in what it means to immigrate to this country, right? That's a big access to the fund question. Do we have a say in terms of whether people who come in, are coming out of prison are hired, right? Hmm. Or not hired, <laughs> That, yeah, so these these are access to the pond questions, yeah. right? Yeah. We have a say about who gets to go to a good school, right? That's an access in the pond question. So democracy is a system where everyone who's part, who's a full part of that society has a say in public decision-making. So we get to be part of public decisions in a democracy in some form, right? They're all different kinds of democracies. Yeah, um, and I would have said that as a young radical, which I'm sure doesn't surprise people a whole lot that I was a young radical, but at some point, but as a young radical, I thought that most people did not have a say in public decision making in the United States. Really, um, and then I went to the Philippines and experienced what a dictatorship is like, and I went, oh, <laughs> we do have a democracy in the United States. It's not perfect, you know, but there are real mechanisms through which people who reside in communities and contribute to communities have a say in what happens in the public decisions that impact their community. We just mostly don't use those tools. We have the tools of democracy, which are more than vote. Vote is very important. People in the civil rights movement died so that they could have the vote, right? Vote matters. But vote is not the only way in a democracy that we have a say. We also have a voice in multiple ways. We also have influence in multiple ways on our representatives. So, you know, democracy is all about being able to utilize those gifts for God's kingdom and for his purpose. A minute ago, you said there's a difference between calling and engaging the church. Yes, absolutely. Can you break those apart for me? Because you said you're not a prophet. No. Which one is the prophet doing, calling or engaging? Because I feel like maybe both. Okay. So... Prophet historically, and again, I'm talking about when I say the word prophet, I know people use that word very loosely. I'm not actually using it loosely. I'm really talking about um, the line of prophecy that we see through the Old Testament into Jesus, into the New Testament, right? Mm -hmm. So prophets really are about speaking God's truth into a historic moment. What is God calling the people to, right? To speak that call. And um, that's a beautiful work. It really is. But it's it's not exactly the same as organizing because organizing is about fanning the flame that God has placed in each person of calling. Mm. Is, is here the difference? Yeah. So it's about it's about equipping and enabling people to come together to fulfill their calling, to be the body of Christ in in the transformation of the community, um, in the the loving of the community in the bringing of eternal and abundant life in Jesus to the community. But, you know, that, that everybody has a gift in the church. It's the body of Christ. Everybody has a role. Everybody has a gift. 
an organizer is someone who equips people to to live out those gifts in the holistic mission that God calls us to and to live them out together. So that that's a very different role than than the proclaiming of the truth. Yeah. Um, I and I think that um, we don't take that seriously in the church enough. So let me just give you a little story. Okay. I was I was speaking to a group of activists in Colorado. I was training them, not just speaking to them. I don't really, you, you know, I do speaking, but mostly I do training. Anyhow, I was training them. And uh, I said, what is your relationship to your congregation? Hmm. And one of the women said, I'm an activist. And I said, well, what does that mean? She says, I tell them the truth. And I said, and how's that working for you? <laughs> you know, prophets are not popular. You know, you don't invite them to dinner. And typically, people don't change unless you feel like the person who is calling you to change loves you. Yeah. Is about what is best for you. Um, and, you know, the person who just speaks the call of God into the air, right, without that particular relationship or connection um, is, you know, that word, that seed is going to fall on the ground and some of it is going to produce and some of it isn't. And it, it will depend on the quality of the soil. That's not what an organizer is about. An organizer does something very different, right? Hmm. It's, it's much more about spiritual formation, but not just spiritual formation of individuals. It's spiritual formation. of. I, I like that. But my question becomes, both sides of a democratic debate, even if they don't agree, can both organize. And so how do the two different sets of organizers kind of work together to make something actually work? Does that make, I hope that yes, makes sense. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I don't think that being humble and bold are opposites. Hmm. So, you know, I'm Lutheran. Martin Luther is famous for standing up, you know, in front of the the political and religious and economic authorities and saying, here I stand. I can't do anything else. God help me. Well, that was a pretty humble statement, right? Here I stand. I can't, I can't do anything else. I'm not saying that I know the truth and you don't. I am saying that what God has shown me so far, I will live by and die for. But he could show me that I'm wrong. And he could tell me that I'm wrong through you <laughs> because I'm not him. And, and I know that he is always taking me down a path, right? I know that he has taken me from somewhere else to where I am now. And he will take me from where I am now to somewhere else because God is always revealing himself to us over time. Yeah. We are always growing in, in our wisdom and knowledge of God. Um, so, so that means that to be humble is just to be accurate about that, right? to say, I know that I have human limitations. And so I'm bold about what I have been shown so far, but I'm humble about my human limitations. And I live with that paradox. And that allows me to like bring my greatest passions and my best efforts to the table, right? I don't have to pull back on my passion. I don't have to pull back on my energy. I just have to be humble. So that as you bring your passion and your energy and I bring my passion and my energy, we can struggle together. And Paul talks about that, right? That, that we're not frightened of conflict, that we can struggle together towards, towards the truth. Um, and it doesn't come from holding back, right? One of the things that I encounter a lot in sort of liberal Christians is, 
oh, you know, we can't speak the word of God in the public arena because, you know, that's, that's imposing our word on other people. It's like, wow, why would we not bring our best gifts? Mm. <laughs> it's just a different way of looking at it, right? Yeah. I mean, there's nothing like the power of the word of God itself. Because we, I, we, we organize as if God is real and Jesus is risen because they, God is real and Jesus is risen. And so, you know, you, you trust that when you speak the word of God in the public arena, that even if people don't know it or don't ascribe to it, that it will resonate, that it will echo deeply with them. I want to focus on organizing because one of my goals for next year is to learn to engage with other faiths to come together to work for something much more beautiful than any of the religions can do together uh, because our country will soon, if it's not already, it's not, a, we're not a Christian nation and, yeah, and Christians are definitely a minority. And w- I find often when people want to fall down on, this is the truth and you're wrong, Alexia, you just, you just don't understand why you're wrong. But as soon as you do, right. we'll make the country better. How have you found success in partnering with other faiths or organizing with other faiths to kind of bring more shalom to the communities that we're in or the country that we're in or that you've partnered with? So I have a different model of doing interfaith. And I was the director for many years. It's been interfaith organization, 11 years. So, you know, I, we developed this alternative model. Mm. The interfaith is usually about lowest common denominator. Like what can we all agree on? And that's what we're going to do. So that means the prayers are like completely bland. <laughs> they have no power. <laughs> they, have, they have no color, they have, you know, because what can we actually all do together? Um, well, there's a very different way of doing interfaith, which is rainbow. So, you know, I can, I can give you some stories, but it's about everybody bringing their best to the table. And for us as Christians, it's about being in the world and not of the world. Mm. That, you know, you be part of something larger, but you bring your distinctive in the process and your, your best contribution. So, so let me just give you a funny little story that I think will help you understand this. So we were working um, in the interfaith organization that I directed was primarily focused on economic justice, although we also focused on other things that impact the working poor, like immigration, right? Mm-hmm. But we, we were primarily focused on economic justice. So we were working on um, this campaign where security officers who were security guards, right, are primarily African-American in Los Angeles, about 80% African-American. But they work for these little guard companies. And then the companies are hired by building owners. Makes sense so far? You have to mm-hmm. get to the background. Yeah, like, like a G4S or something like that. One of those huge security companies. Yeah, they're, they're, you have this guard company and the guard companies compete. They bid. Right for getting for cleaning a, a number a number of apartments. Right, so there's a building owner who owns all these these apartments, and then that building owner contracts with the guard company. Right, and they take bids. Well, if they take the lowest bid, if it's the lowest bid process, um, like they're all you know they're all competing for how they can have the lowest bid. Wh- what happens is that they can't pay their the people who work for them very much because they've just gotten the contract because they did the lowest bid. Mm-hmm. So they're paying like dirt wages um, for people to risk their lives. They can't pay health insurance. And because of that, people don't stay in those jobs, right? There's huge turnover. So the only way for them to deal with the huge turnover is they don't do much training mm. because they can't be training constantly, right? It's too expensive. 
but it means that you're taking people who have very little training and putting them in jobs where they're risking their lives, right? Not yeah. a good situation. Yeah. So what we were working on is something called a responsible contracting policy where the building owners and managers association together all agree that they're going to do what's called responsible contracting. They're going to put a floor that the bids go over the floor. Doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. So there is no bid so low that people can't have a living wage, health insurance, and the training and equipment that they need to do their jobs. So the thing is that how do you get the building owners and managers to agree to responsible contracting, right? It's yeah. not in their self-interest necessarily to agree to respond. It doesn't matter to them, right? Except of course that you get a better quality of work, mm -hmm. but you know, and that matters to some employers more than others. Um, but you know, in any field, employers don't like to differ too much because the, the bottom feeders might have an advantage in certain ways, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so you really have to get people to move all together, right? Well, we had discovered that the person who had the most, uh, owned the most buildings, the biggest building owner in Los Angeles County, uh, was an observant Jew. Like he really believed. Um, and so we were like, oh, well, we're gonna get some rabbis to talk to him about how the Torah would call him to take a stand for responsible contracting policy. And then others might come along with him, right? He would be a real influencer. Well, in the best part of him, I'm sure he wanted to meet with those rabbis. <laughs> but so he kept making appointments with them, but he kept canceling the appointments because another part of him didn't want to do that yeah. at all. The other part wants to make money. It, yeah. Right? So what we did, this is called Interfaith as Rainbow, is we were coming up on the high holy days. And observant Jews believe that during the high holy days, the book of life is opened. And your name is written in the book for the next year, or it's not. You know, that you are judged by God at, during those days, right? So um, right at the beginning of High Holy Days, um, the African-American church leaders, pastors and other church leaders from a number of churches came. And we did a gospel prayer meeting on the ground floor of the business where he had his headquarters on the top floor. So we started to do this gospel <laughs> prayer meeting, <laughs> you know, and praising Jesus and, you know, full on gospel prayer meeting. And, you know, it's very uh, lively, right? With lots of great music. And so some of the tenants were joining in. And so first, you know, they called the police, but the police wanted to wait until the service was over before they told us to leave. Oh, so you didn't ask for um, permission. You just showed up and started. No, of course oh, we didn't perfect. ask for permission. We were never <laughs> <laughs> So... The police wanted to wait till the service was over before they asked us to leave, right? Mm -hmm. They wanted to be respectful. But of course, the gospel prayer service is never over. We could have gone for days. Right? <laughs> so, you know, the police go over to one of the pastors and try to get him to stop. And so the leadership shifts to one of the elderly sisters and they go over to her and then the leadership shifts to an 11 year old. You know, it's like, right. So that's not going to happen. So the guy at the top, you know, he doesn't have any like, Black pastors don't have any religious authority for him, right? So he's like, oh, I'll meet with them, right? So he says, okay, the, the black pastors can come up and I'll meet with them. But what he doesn't know is around the corner, there are a little group of rabbis <laughs> who, <laughs> with, you know, I think it's apples and honey. There's something that's the beginning that you <laughs> at the beginning of High Holy Days. And so when he says that the black pastors can come up, there's a bait and switch, you know, and the rabbis go up. 
right? <laughs> and, <laughs> and they have a real conversation with him about what does the Torah say? You know, did any of the and black pastors actually go up, or was it just no, all, no, they all didn't rabbis? Do it. it was just the rabbis. <laughs> we just had to get the rabbis. <laughs> so they had a real conversation, and he was very thoughtful. And before the end of High Holy Days, he adopted the responsible contract policy and called everybody else. So that was a that was interfaith as rainbow, right? I mean, the black pastors didn't hold back on calling on the name of Jesus. Mm-hmm. But the rabbis didn't have to be part of that. That would not have been authentic for them. Yeah, you know they did something else, but it worked together to 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 do God's will on earth as it is in heaven. I like that. Uh, caring for the families. I of like that. Parents. I like yeah. this. I hope this doesn't sound. I like the passive aggressiveness of it. Of you won't talk to us. <laughs> we will have church in the basement until you talk to us. But you're not actually going to talk to us. You're going to talk to him, or her, or whomever. I like. <laughs> I, I like that. I know it's late. I know it's late, but I think it's not too. It's worth being saved So will you help me hold this house Will you help me hold this house um, I want to shift because you brought it up earlier immigration and uh, I want to I want to tread lightly because it is an extremely charged and extremely political topic and actually let me say that it wasn't always. Can I just say this? Yes, that in you 2005, can. there was 5% difference between Republicans and Democrats. 5%. Difference of, okay. What do you mean, like on immigration? What do you mean? On views of immigration. Okay. 5% difference between Republicans and Democrats in 2005. And hmm. in 2007 and in 2013, there were thoroughly bipartisan proposals to fix our broken system, hmm. to make a system that would be effective, fair, logical, and humane. Wasn't about open borders, was about fair, effective, logical, and humane, broad consensus. When those proposals were pulled on, we would get with the content of those proposals, right? Not the name immigration reform, the actual legislative content of those proposals. When you poll on them, the average American, you get 75% in 2007 and in 2013. So this does not have to be the partisan issue that is. But it, it is right now. Do you Absolutely. still get those same, if you took those same legislations and stripped them of a name and just asked people, is it still roughly the same or has that polling even been done? Um, that polling has not been done. I what would be the curious. polling that has been done is with the phrase immigration reform. Mm-hmm. So this is a shift that I'm going to tell you about that we were actually part of in the evangelical immigration table nationally. But in 2007, 83% of white evangelicals were against immigration reform as a phrase. So from 2005 to 2007, woo, right? Um, but then as the Evangelical Immigration Table, which we formed in 2011, did its work, in 2013, 72% of white evangelicals were for immigration reform because they understood that the phrase immigration reform was not partisan and in fact referred to the proposals that they had read. Mm. By 2016, no, 2018, excuse me, we were down to 42%, 42%. So 30 point drop in five years. That was that was not because the content of the proposal has changed, yeah. nor because people had a like in-depth study of immigration policy and decided that they that their positions had changed. No, that's not what happened. So it does not have to be the kind of issue it is. And those are the same people on that committee. Yes, or whatever. Like it's the, the exact people. same people. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. 
So why do you think it's shifted to be so charged? Is it just, is it fear? Is it power? Is it money? Well, it's fear. Mm -hmm. And the fear has been very intentionally drummed up by people for whom it is their political advantage to drum it up. And not only in words and symbols, but in actual actions. So let me give you an example of actions. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, because this is not just a war of symbols and words. Um, In... uh, we have a human rights crisis in Central America that has to do with organized crime. Um, terrible organized crime. The worst international organized crime syndicate we've ever seen. You know, the 21st century is the century of these huge multinational corporations, huge multinational in- organizations like ISIS, you know, or the Mara Salvatrucha, right? So we're, this is our 21st century challenge is what do we do with these huge multinationals organizations? Anyhow, so there's this human rights crisis. So under the Obama administration, 2014, their initial reactions to the crisis were were not lovely, but then they sort of turned around and they organized something called the Alliance for Prosperity, which involved um, every uh, country in Central America and including Mexico and the United States. And there were a couple of other players as well from Europe. And the Alliance for Prosperity decided that they would take El Salvador and they would make an example of it because it's small. It's smaller than every other country, Mm. right? So what they did is they invested heavily um, in security and development, both security and development, not security or development, both security and development, training, resources, personnel, money, everything, right? And you mean like development of the infrastructure or? Economic development. Okay right? Economic development and security. So you make it highly uncomfortable for organized crime to function. And the foot soldiers have other options besides organized crime for surviving, right? So you do, it's both and. And it was a public-private partnership, worked with the churches, worked with the NGOs. So it was really very creative and very well done. And in two years, by 2016, the homicide rate in El Salvador had been cut in half and the numbers of people coming to the border were cut in half. Whoa, like major success. Really powerful, two years. But one of the first things that this administration did was to cut funding, was to pull out of the Alliance for Prosperity and to cut funding. Hmm. So what do you think happens? The homicide rate goes way Hmm. up and the numbers of people coming to the border go way up, right? But for this administration, the numbers of people coming to the border provoke fear. Yeah. And fear is very effective in elections. Fear is a very strong motivator for people. So I, I did a presentation for the Evangelical Covenant Church Women um, a, a little while, a few months ago. And I had a really lovely woman come up to me, a lovely sister in Christ, come up to me and say, I was listening to your stories about the children and we have to do something to help those children. But what are we going to do about the armed invasion at our border? Mm. So I said, um, why do you believe there's an armed invasion at our border? She said, well, everyone, I, everyone knows that. So I said, you know, I, I work at the border and I'm very familiar with the refugee crisis at the border. And, you know, we're talking refugees here. And that doesn't mean that there's no organized crime folks in and around all of this. I mean, of course there are, but, but the vast majority of people Organized crime has no problem getting in and out of this country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. The people at the border waiting, those are well, they're refugees. And so um, 
she said, no, you're just wrong. Hmm. You're just wrong. She said, and I won't be able to trust what you say if you don't recognize what the truth and what everyone says. Well, that's because she was listening to certain news sources. And that's all she was listening to. And those are the news sources her pastor told her to listen to. And there you go. Right. She heard she was convinced without ever having seen it because people she trusted told her that there was an armed invasion at our southern border. So if we had actually continued with the Alliance for Prosperity and we had greatly reduced the numbers of people coming, we would not have had the appearance of an an invasion at the border. Uh, Let me give you another policy decision. Um, There's been a real focus on moving resources from processing. Processing decides whether or not people are potentially eligible for asylum, right? It's a it's a it's an intensive process with a lot of vetting and proof, right? So, so there the resources for processing have been moved to enforcement. So what that means is we have something at the southern border in Tijuana, where I know it best, called metering, which means that instead of processing 300 people a day and deciding whether they have credible fear or not to enter into an asylum process. You decide that some of them would and some of them wouldn't. You deport the ones that don't, right? You know, mm-hmm. you let the others enter into the process. Instead of processing 300 people a day, which is what we have capacity for, um, what we used to have capacity for, we process 20 people a day. So what does that do? It creates a backlog. Yeah. So it creates people standing at the border. So I'm saying there have been actions which increase a situation which causes fear. This may not be a question that you can answer, but our churches are... In America, at least, they seem to have a, a decent amount of, of, of wealth. If, if the church actually wanted to, and, and I mean church, all, all of us, Lutheran, Baptist, Methodist, all, all the church, could they refund that? Is that even a thing that the church no, should be engaged? No. Like, I don't even the know what kind of money, money you're talking, you're talking about. about here are way beyond what, what churches have oh, available. Man. Oh, these are, these, this is a collaboration between countries. Yeah. The churches have been, were very involved in Central America, and we could certainly have been part of that. You know, like I know our Lutheran church was working on something called safe villages. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's an interesting concept, right? Like villages that were far enough out in the countryside that when people are deported instead of being killed, right, that they could go to, to go. these safe villages and they could start, you know, cottage industries and the churches in Central America were heavily involved in creating these. And we could certainly, as the churches in North America, have joined with them. One of the things that, that people in churches in Central America, our church says, is why do, the, why, don't, why do our brothers and sisters in the U.S. not talk to us or listen to us? Um, so there's an evangelical organization called Enlace that works. It's a community development. Enlace, E-N-L-A-C-E. They do community development and missions. Holistic mission, so you know, proclamation of the gospel, community development in Central America, right? And Lasse recently did a conference in Chicago to talk about their work, but also to talk about the human rights crisis and what this country needed to do and what churches here could do. And you know, they're willing to do that again, and we're trying to organize one in Southern California. Mm. But you know, it's like these are our brothers and sisters, evangelical churches in Central America, and they're telling us, no, this crisis is coming out of these roots, and this is what could be done about it, mm-hmm. and but we're not really listening, right, mm-hmm. um, as the church in North America. So, of course, my work and the work of many of us, uh, and it's unpaid work. I say my work. I should really say vocation, you know, because we're not getting paid for it, but I do a lot. I spend a lot of time educating people. Um, I'll go anywhere, do anything to let people know, like, this is what's actually going on, and this is what we can do. I want to ask you as, as, as a final topic slash question. So 
someone hears that, for, I've never heard of that coalition that President um, President Trump disbanded or stopped funding. I've never heard of that prior, but that makes me sad. Um, but I often find, um, and it's from a friend, um, past guest of the show, but he's become a friend, Paul Thomas, that spent time in El Salvador uh, working and, and, and doing stuff with um, different ministries. And I, he worked with someone that I believe knew Romero. And so there's, either, either way, he's got a great story. But as I've spoken with him, he's like, yeah, most people in, in the United States don't quite understand that most of a lot of the refugee crisis and the economic depravity is specifically because of some of our capitalistic policies. And then we need to oh, take yeah. ownership of that. Um, but that's an entirely different topic. So but for someone listening and, you know, as you learn different pieces and nuggets, I find myself either getting angry and that motivates me or being motivated just out of altruism. Like these, these people bear the image of the divine God and it matters that we need to do this right. And so what can an individual in a church, even if the church doesn't necessarily want to partner with them, the church that they go to, what can an individual do to help justice and compassion and mercy and love and treating people as humans, specifically at the border with immigration? Because by the time this airs, there will probably be a few small candidates of democratic runners uh, in the, in the presidential election coming up. And then you'll begin to, to walk into that entire election season and it's going to get extremely hateful and vitriolic and vehemoth and everything else. And so my fear is people will go, Oh, that's great. I'll do something. And then they won't do anything. So what are a few things that people can do? So, you know, I want to say that there are organizations that you can join, right. That you can be part of. Um, if you want to join Christian organizations specifically, and you have a national audience, right? Yeah. That's, so I should speak about national, because if they're in Southern California, they should contact Matthew 25, which is us, Matthew25SoCal.org. Um, but, but, you know, if you're not in Southern California, World Relief does great work on these issues. Um, if, if you want to go with the evangelical direction on it, um, so does the Evangelical Immigration Table, although they're focused much more just on policy, whereas World Relief does accompaniment and also policy, mm -hmm. right? If you're working, um, if you prefer sort of the mainline Protestant direction, there's uh, the Methodists do great work. They have a welcome network and they do great work around all of these issues. They do accompaniment and advocacy. Um, there's, oh my gosh, what am I thinking? Sojourners, you know, mm -hmm. is doing a lot of policy work around this and also supporting a company work, accompaniment work with their new SOJA action. Um, and then um, there's um, the Interfaith Immigration Coalition in DC has a bunch of different denominations and NGOs, a Lutheran Immigrant Refugee Services. There's just lots of these national organizations that they, they engage churches or they engage individuals. Yeah. And they will, you can, you know, you can connect with them and they will let you know where you can work locally in ways that are hands-on and also in ways that are advocacy oriented. I want to, I want to ask a follow-up question, but before I want to remind people what you said earlier, immigration is not, is not a political issue. It's, it's, no, it's, not. it's, it hasn't been it's historically. A, yeah. And so as people hear you speak and they're like, well, I don't want to do that. Or I don't, that doesn't agree with what I see on CNN or Fox or MSNBC or whatever. Um, it's. It's a human issue. It's if if it's a human issue, it's a go, it's a gospel issue, issue. And so. it's a gospel issue. Yeah. Welcome the stranger. Mm. You know, what about Matthew 25? Do we not understand? Mm -hmm. You know, people say, What is it about illegal that you not understand? I get the question. What is it about Matthew 25 that you don't understand? <laughs> you 
know, it's, this is pretty core to our faith, right? Yeah, I asked, I think it was Brad Jersak, a question similar to that. And he's like, I don't think you seem to understand. Jesus seems to make it a, a measuring stick for his followers. And so it's not really about what you want to think. It is what it is. This, this is the measuring stick. I thought I was and pretty clear. To have compassion, to feel with, to have empathy, to care about the stranger does not create an automatic immigration policy. We still have to do the hard work mm-hmm. of figuring out how to have a system that is effective, logical, just, and humane. That protects our borders where we need to be protect our borders and that you know has has an appropriate process of of vetting people coming into the country. You know, there's a but we can do it. I mean, like I said, we have bipartisan proposals that yeah. outline how to do it. It's just the political will to pass them, right? I am curious where those are. I might email you one off and say, hey, I would like to see what's in there because that's it wasn't really something that I cared as much about. Look up the um, 2013, I think it's the Border Something Act. Look up immigration reform or immigration legislation 2013. It's the Border Something long, long, long line. You can read it. You can read everything that's in it. It's right there. And it was done by the Gang of Eight, thoroughly bipartisan. And of course, you won't be happy with everything in it. Because it was a compromise. Remember, remember the works. concept of compromise? Remember that concept? Um, so, you know, <laughs> but I, as somebody who's been working with these issues for 30 years, you know, it's it was solid, good stuff. Mm. It would have made a huge difference for lots of hurting families. Again, what matters on the bottom end? What that matters at the end of the whole thing? It's what happens to children and their families, yeah. right? It would have made a huge difference for children and their families. And... Um, and been beneficial for our country as a whole. Yeah. So, you know, I feel like we have to resist the temptation of the kabuki drama that's going on in our country or, you know, the the Super Bowl of political war, you know, because it really takes us away from what we can do together. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Dr. Salvatera, where would you send people to um, to read what you're up to, listen to what you're saying, all the, all the places, where would you send people to? Mm, that's a good question because I don't do, I don't do self-promotion at all, but I, you know, <laughs> so I just don't, <laughs> I, I mean, I have a website, but it's, it's like way out of date. It's just basically to get in touch with me if you need to. So if anybody wants to talk to me personally, I do have a website, Alexia Salvatierra, but the bio is 10 years old, but it's all right. You know, just whatever. Um, if you need to reach me, that's a good way to reach me. Because I do try to respond to everybody who contacts me. Um, and I do go all over the country to teach if I can, if people can bring me. Um, but, I, you know, Matthew 25, SoCal.org is a good place to go. Um, if you want to just know more about these issues, EvangelicalImmigrationTable.com. Um, also, um, World Relief, like mm-hmm. I said, mm-hmm. you know, there's Perfect. a number of places that you can look. National Immigration Forum, if you want secular, really good quality, moderate, secular information about immigration and the history and the dynamics and the statistics. And, you know, go to National Immigration Forum. They're great. Yeah. Right. They're, they, they're really middle of the road. They're really um, give voice to a variety of perspectives. And they're really scientific. They're solid in terms of their evidence. Right. I really thank you again for your time today. I've enjoyed the chat. Well, I've been held in a thousand ways. If my heart looks broken, then I've been brave enough to live. If
perfect turns to perfect mess, and all your love is all that's left. Then I'm so the year is almost over. I have loved doing this this year. Next week's conversation is going to be fantastic with Dr. Alexander Shia. You don't, it's, it's just going to be great. And, and this one was fantastic as well. So you're probably wondering, what could you get, can I say this at church podcast for Christmas? And the answer is easy. If money's tight, and it's tight for a lot of you, just rate and review the show, or shoot, just share the show on social media. Do both. Cost you nothing. Pick one of your favorite episodes of the year and just blast out why. I would love to see that. Um, or, or review the show and say the same thing. I spoke with Alexia today from a review. It was a recommendation, and then as I dug into her name, I'm like, oh yeah, this is going to be a great conversation. And so continue to do those However, if money's not quite so tight, and by that I mean you have literally one extra dollar, consider supporting the show. You can do that one of two ways. So you can do that on Patreon. That's probably the best avenue. But you can also do it through Glow. And you'll find both of those links in the show notes, both of those links at the website. And then the year is winding down. And as so, I'd like to plan better for next year. I have some big, big plans for next year. And um, I'm going to try some new topics, some new points of view. And I think it's going to stretch me. Maybe it'll stretch you. And I hope that's okay, because I'm going to do it anyway. And so I can't wait to talk with you next week. Merry almost Christmas, everyone. Be blessed. If my beauty starts to fade, well, I've been held in a thousand ways. If my heart looks broken in, then I've been brave enough to live. If perfect turns to perfect mess, and all your love is all that's left, then I'm as real as real can be. I'm as real as real can be. Then I'm as real. Call me Velveteen